0: Welcome to the Alternative Design Podcast, where we empower creatives to rethink space and how it's designed. I'm your host, Kaylin Reed, a Metro Detroiter, a former interior designer turned brand ambassador, and I'm inspired by the forward-thinking concepts found in the margins of our design community. Join us as we go deeper than the mainstream conversations buzzing around the industry and present an alternative way to think about how we can design for a better human experience. Designers can typically identify the smallest details in a space. If the carpentry finish isn't just right, we see it. If the gray paint color we specified looked great on the swatch, but came out a little more on the purple side when it was installed, we see it. When the logo design is off by two pixels, we see it. But are there things we aren't seeing as an industry? In this episode, I initially set out to interview Maya Bird Murphy and present the inspiring work she's doing with Chicago Mobile Makers. But what I didn't see was that the struggles that motivated her to start her nonprofit were deeper and more complex than I understood. Her story illuminates a bigger conversation that we felt had to be explored. We're going to discuss the pipeline problem we have in our industry. This pipeline of designers extends from young creatives all the way to becoming certified and then practicing professionally. But there are unique and specific challenges that present themselves to designers of color that cause leaks in this pipeline. Or in other words, a dropping out on the path to licensure and practice. We'll touch on a few, but certainly not all the ways our fellow designers are affected by these leaks. But we're also going to celebrate the people who are rolling up their sleeves and offering solutions, like Maya. These catalysts for change include the folks at Diversify Architecture. And we will be speaking with Jake Heffington and Edwin Harris on what they're up to on this front. This is episode two, What You Don't See. There's a modest house, nestled in between tall trees, on the corner of Forest and Chicago. The neighborhood has a musky sweet smell of crunchy leaves and gives off small-town vibes, even though it's only a few stops west of downtown on the Green Line. It's completely mesmerizing. A collection of bold geometric structures clearly indicates several additions made to the home. But it still somehow feels cohesive, maybe even intentional, And while it doesn't submit to fussy Victorian embellishments found on some of the neighboring architecture, it instead uses wooden shingles and simple brick. But what you might not see when you look at this glorious residence is the matching figures of art that flank the entry. A reddish stone cast of a man crouched down, almost looking like he's trying to break free from the pillar he's mounted on. It's said that the vision of this sculpture was to represent the struggle of the oppressed and shackled soul to break its bonds and find self-expression. This is the home and studio of Frank Lloyd Wright, one of history's most prolific architects. And it's found in Oak Park, Illinois, where Maya Bird Murphy grew up.
1: So that's kind of a strange and unique upbringing. (laughs) This is Maya. Which I'm realizing now, like, in the architecture field, that a lot of people don't get brought up in these places. I feel like I was surrounded by architecture from day one, I didn't really need to go and ask anybody about what architecture was. I just knew what it was because it was all around me. It was really easy for us to take the train downtown and see skyscrapers and see a lot of different architecture in the city as well. So I like to say that I acquired architecture and I didn't really realize this until I moved away that I was so lucky to grow up in a place like this.
0: Maya is the creator and founder of Chicago Mobile Makers, a nonprofit that targets youth and underserved communities. The goal is for kids to build skills and learn design thinking strategies to set them up for a successful career. She also hopes to fill the architectural profession with more minority designers. But before we dive into her work, I want to offer some real experiences, not only from Maya, but a few other designers who bravely shared their stories with us.
2: My name is Kiana Wenzel and I am the Director of Culture and Community at Design Core Detroit, a nonprofit economic development organization housed at the College for Creative Studies, whose mission is to establish Detroit as a globally valued and recognized capital for design talent. I do feel like there needs to be more Ethnic representation on the professorship level. We need more professors from different cultures to bring their perspective. We still have a lot of work to do when it comes to the student body and undergrad. It was only one, maybe three black students in my class. So we definitely need to work on increasing the pipeline. I believe middle school, junior high, high school, college, all the way to becoming a practitioner. What can we do to get more young people involved so that our college, the classes of students growing, graduating from universities can be more reflective of society as a whole.
3: My name is Layla, I'm 27, and I currently work at InnerSix Studio as an interior designer. I didn't think about how color my skin would also impact my experience in the industry, but I had an instructor who would talk to me about it, and she would let me know that there weren't a lot of black or brown people in the industry and that I needed to be aware of that because it was important for my voice to be heard in the industry. And she really pushed me not only to do well in school but to sort of put put myself out there in terms of meeting new people and talking to other people because I was or am a Hispanic woman. Hi, my name is Haroff. I'm a commercial residential interior designer based in Detroit, Michigan, and I am a woman of color. I do have formal design training. I went to Kendall College of Art and Design, where I graduated with my bachelor's in interior design. And thinking back to five, ten years ago, while I was still in school, I was very often the only person of color in class. Our school is pretty small, as is, maybe about 1,000 students. But of that thousand, one to 2% accounted for students of color. I was learning about interior design and furniture design in this great mecca of knowledge for the field. And representation of diversity was not seen at all. I didn't have professors of color. I didn't see manufacturer reps or vendors of color. I learned a ton about Frank Lloyd Wright, but I learned nothing about black architecture. I learned nothing about Donald White, the first black licensed architect in Michigan. And that representation in our curriculum and just in general, I don't know if that has really changed since then. It's still an ask to have more of that It's known that we are stakeholders in our cities, in our communities, and we need to be a part of the process and making sure that we're engaging those that haven't been heard so their stories can be brought to the table to share amongst everyone, everyone.
1: And this is not just all State, it's basically everywhere, where there are not many people of color in these design programs. I was one of the very few people of color, so I, I didn't really understand that this was a nationwide problem, but when I got there I knew that Ball State was like 8% black at the time. And then on top of that, I was in the architecture program, which was even less people of color. So. It just narrowed, it continued narrowing, and then I graduated as like the only African-American person um, in my architecture class. So that's really hard while you're going through it, and then you're watching people leave. But then it's really hard to be in classrooms where, you know, you're only learning about white designers.
0: Do you remember the statues at Frank Lloyd Wright's studio in Oak Park? Together, they're called Boulder Man. And like we said earlier, they represent the struggle of the oppressed and shackled soul to break its bonds and find self-expression. But what you might not see in these statues is the complexity and even irony within the art pieces. Many who are being oppressed are not finding self-expression in their education experience. And Wright himself stands as a bit of a symbol as to why. Kiana, Layla, and Danae shared their stories with us about how they didn't feel well-represented. And Danae specifically says, I learned a
3: ton about Frank Lloyd Wright, but I learned nothing about Black architecture.
0: Nothing against Frank, because he clearly shifted the way we know and understand architecture, even to this day. But many would say our design education system is pretty Eurocentric and often doesn't focus on a diverse, well-represented curriculum. It seems to be becoming more obvious that while Sullivan, Eames, and Wright are undoubtedly important to our profession, We also need to make space to hear about the brilliant work from architects like Donald White, Robert Robinson Taylor, and Beverly Lorraine Green. At the wise age of 88, Wright reflected on his education and said, Education, of course, is always based on what was. More recently, students at Harvard University felt that the what was part of their curriculum needed some reshaping from the traditionally white, often male, perspective. In the summer of 2020, they issued Notes on Credibility, a list of 13 actions to be taken by the Graduate School of Design that will promote anti-racism, a shift from the Eurocentric perspective, and proactively address a more diverse representation of the college experience. So far, the university is listening and implementing change. But let's get back to Maya and see what it looked like for her to enter the workplace after college.
1: I actually graduated early because I was ready to get back to Chicago. (laughs) And I came back, got a job, and was really excited and thought it would be different. And then I was the only black person at the firm of more than 20 people. It just, it felt like, oh, finally, here I am. And then it was just the same thing. Like nothing was different from school. So it's a really tough path for people of color, if you're just consistently the only person in the room that looks like you, it's really uncomfortable. And then really started thinking about how I could do something personally to to start changing this or addressing this problem. That's when I did my master's at Boston Architectural College, and that's where I did my thesis, and I started doing all the research and development for Chicago Mobile Makers there. So, Maya
0: came back to her community and saw an opportunity to solve for a big problem that she realized as a result of her own experience. The lack of diversity in the architecture and design industry could be influenced by a design studio on wheels catered to kids.
1: We do design thinking and problem solving workshops all over Chicago. And we do all of these workshops with youth, so it's usually age eight to 18. The point of these is that we're trying to diversify the architecture field and have conversations about lack of diversity in the fields, but then also start giving young people the skills and exposing people early to design. And hopefully years later, we have more people of color entering these fields. So why kids? So I think that the reason why we're focusing so much on youth is because I think it begins that early. where. If nobody is telling you about what design is or what architecture is, you're living in a community where there's maybe no building going on, and it's only tearing down buildings. And then you see, like, big patches where a building used to be, and it's an empty lot now. So how would you ever know about architecture in the first place?
0: We've been talking a lot about the lack of diversity from an education standpoint, and even in the workplace. But what you might not see are the barriers that keep that nationwide problem Maya talked about earlier right where it is. For example, what Maya just shared about kids not having exposure to design in the first place is a barrier. If a community that's underserved has limited resources due to lack of funding or historic boundaries that have been established for decades, it's nearly impossible to maintain the buildings that make up that architectural landscape, let alone erect new ones. And so you begin to see signs of blight or the remains of structures that are now completely gone. There's no real inspiration to be seen by the kids growing up in that community who could potentially choose design or architecture as a career like Maya did. But unfortunately, that's just one example of the many macro and micro barriers that exist in our industry that are creating a crisis. Many refer to this discipline-wide crisis as a pipeline problem, which for visual people I think works. So if you imagine young hopeful creatives entering the pipeline to eventually come out the other side a licensed architect or designer there are leaks that Maya says
1: are basically every step of the way.
0: My conversation with Maya went from discussing this awesome innovative thing she's doing with youth to realizing that there's so many more barriers that could affect the kids she's working with. At that point, I really wanted to learn more about the leaks in the pipeline. So I spoke with Diversify Architectures, Executive Director and Creator Jake Huffington, and board member and co-founder of Evoke Studio, Edwin Harris.
4: There's a lot of research out there that is really revealing not only about the final statistic of where the architecture community lies, but you know, we're able to, with some specificity, identify where specific groups fall out of the process.
0: This is Jake.
4: And it becomes pretty complicated because the barriers aren't the same for every community. So, for instance, relatively, percentage-wise, there's a larger drop-off among Latinx communities at a later stage in the process versus a larger drop-off among uh, African-American communities earlier in the process. And knowing all of those things becomes really important when you're really trying to do the work. If you're an organization like us, those things are everything because that tells you where to focus your efforts.
0: So we can't group the barriers together and make assumptions that they're going to be the same for everyone, like we learned in episode one, Everyone is bio-individual. That also means that everyone has their own experiences, unique to them, just like Maya did. We can benefit, though, from familiarizing ourselves with and recognizing some of the more widespread challenges affecting our fellow designers. And that's exactly what Diversify Architecture did.
4: We've identified three critical barriers that minority communities face in the architectural training process. So education and art process is really important and even our own education in terms of identifying these leaks and understanding how to overcome them. So the three critical barriers that we've been able to parse out from data suggests that awareness of the field at an early enough age to enter the pipeline in kind of the traditional way, admittance into universities, And follow through to licensure are the three critical barriers that we've identified and said those are the ones that we can start to tackle.
0: Each year, the National Council of Architectural Registration Boards provides a by the numbers report that offers data on the quantity, demographics, socioeconomic backgrounds, all sorts of things as it relates to architects, both in the field and in academia. In 2020, they partnered with the National Association for Minority Architects to conduct a joint survey on exploring barriers along the path to licensure. Specifically, to determine if there are hurdles that disproportionately affect minorities and other underrepresented groups. The results suggest there's often widespread disparity, not only through the licensure process, but in firm culture as well. While all people of color, especially women of color, are impacted by these disparities in some ways, African Americans report challenges at nearly every stage.
4: So, when you're in the world of architecture, which is a pretty insular profession. It doesn't take very long to realize that diversity is not a high value in terms of the workforce. It's a predominantly white profession, like most professions that require advanced degrees. And that's a problem in every profession. But in architecture, there's a second tier of problem that shows up when you don't have a diverse workforce and that's that architects are one of only a few professions who have any sort of influence and insight in the development process so the way our cities grow and change the way our towns move around and readjust every building and street and neighborhood they're all the result of deliberate decisions that people are making and architects are one of only a few groups of people who are making those decisions so I think for us, the the foundational component here is that when the communities who are designing and creating our built environment don't represent all people when a community is underrepresented, uh, the way the development of the built environment progresses tends to harm, ignore, or forget about those communities. And we've seen the results of that process for decades and decades and decades, we've known about it. We've had an understanding of the adverse effects of things like gentrification, uneven development, food deserts, all sorts of patterns and processes that most often, and that's not even a strong enough way to say it, nearly always affect minority communities rather than the majority community. And when you look at who's making the decisions to make all of those developments happen, it becomes really clear why that is there's a lot of work going on right now around building and creating policy to influence affordable housing and public access to public space and all really great things and very positive and we need to continue on with that but at some point we have to reconcile with the fact that no matter how many policies we had to put in place if the people sitting around the table when crunch time comes and development decisions are being made are all white then there's going to be nobody to have a vested interest and hold the uh, well-being of minority communities at a high standard.
0: We also spoke with Edwin Harris to understand more about why diversity matters.
5: Our world is changing in so many different ways, shapes, and facets. And when you only have one perspective, you're going to always have a blind spot that you're just not seeing. Because you only know your experience and the way you look at things. But if someone else comes from a different perspective and thinks about it from a different way, you're going to come up with a better solution. So the reality is that diversity is actually a good thing, not just because it's the right thing to do relative to making sure everyone has a voice and has power to speak to their future and, and the things that are important to them, but also What's important to them ultimately is going to be important to all of us, because all of us are trying to thrive, and all of us are trying to be prosperous in this world.
0: In our industry, we welcome new ideas and pride ourselves on constantly innovating to produce creative solutions. But we must look harder and work to see how we can elevate the voices who need a seat at the table, not just because it's the right thing to do, even though it is, but because our client base is becoming more and more diverse. Our projects are becoming more complex, and therefore, we can't best serve the needs of the user without diverse perspectives. Otherwise, we actually do more harm than good because entire groups of people are not being considered during the design process. We must represent and reflect the communities we serve. And it's not just about diversity amongst architects. While I know sometimes interior designers may not always have a seat at the table when it comes to policymaking, we absolutely are influencers of the way the built environment looks and functions we have the same responsibility to look out for those blind spots and missing perspectives Edwin talked about. If we don't, we miss out on the airy industrial tech startup designs from Danny Arps, the rich ceramics and textiles from Meline Barnett, the modern interpretations of African furniture design from Jomo Tariku, the globally influenced art forms and designs from David Ajayi. These designers all persevered and contributed so much of their talents to our industry, But who could we be missing because an ambitious designer of color fell through the pipeline? This episode is sponsored by National, where workplace products support lifestyles and unique personalities. At National, we balance smart design and great value, all while being easy to do business with. We want you to feel comfortable in your space so that you can be confident and do your best work. Let National help you transform spaces into places where you can be yourself. Visit nationalofficefurniture.com to learn more.
5: I think you, you have to identify what the issue is before you can address it, right?
0: You can't fix what you can't see.
5: And so I think if you're only talking about it being a problem and bringing awareness to it, that's great. But I get tired of hearing about you just identifying the problem all the time. Tell me how you want to solve it and how we can solve it. Ideas are one thing, but then the action is way more important.
0: Seeing the problem, knowing what you're passionate about doing, and then taking action helps to guarantee a sustainable change that we need in our profession. Let's get back to Maya and hear how she's taking action with Chicago Mobile Makers.
1: So I think skills are the most important thing of this. I think that's the whole reason that we are doing what we do is because a skill is such a powerful thing to have, and it could be something small. We recently converted a USPS mail truck into a mobile design studio. So the purpose of this is that we can store a bunch of power tools inside the truck and it's fully powered. It has solar panels on the roof. And the purpose is that we can drive up to anywhere, any neighborhood, park the truck, but the truck doesn't need to be on to use the power. And so we're doing maybe an entire community build day, wherever that location is. And the kids are actually um, a huge part of that building process. So obviously we're not building buildings, we're not building anything huge. We're just doing small scale interventions within community.
0: So she's bringing the resources and opportunities to them. Not only that, her workshops are low cost or free.
1: I would say our main workshop is called Community Makers, and that is a once a week program up to 10 weeks. In this one, we always pick a site that's close to wherever we're doing the workshop. So it could be a school, it could be a community center, and so we go through the entire design process with the kids. We talk about history or any controversy that the site has had. And then we focus on getting an entire understanding of this area and of the neighborhood. And then we look at what is missing here. We look at what already is here and then we say, what could be better? So the kids actually then propose what they would build in this site. As an example, we have a workshop at Shures High School, which is by this really controversial intersection that used to have a Sears, and once Sears left, everything left. There's a literal hole in the ground in one of them where they demolished the building and just didn't put anything else there. Schur's is only a couple blocks um, away from this intersection, and so these kids are taking the bus through this. They're driving through it. They're walking through it to get to school. So it's just, it's a site that they intimately know. And after the whole design process, we ask them, what do you think should go here?
0: It seems like common sense to me that the people living in a neighborhood should have a voice in what the built environment looks and functions like. But what's the benefit in giving kids the mic?
1: Yeah, I think it's a benefit for a few reasons. One of the biggest ones is that we're giving youth a voice and they're feeling like they're being heard. Youth definitely have really great imaginations, but at the same time, we're not usually getting any crazy proposals. We usually get like, oh, there's not enough health centers around, so that's what we build. Or we've had homeless shelters, and people will say, we see this group of homeless people standing on this particular corner. So everything is very realistic, very relevant, very serious. They take it seriously. And we've heard, we always try to get feedback from students after, and we've heard that this made them actually feel like they could change things in their community, even though they know that this is a conceptual thing.
0: At Chicago Mobile Makers, everyone gets a seat at the table, especially kids. It sounds like a bright and inclusive future is ahead of us.
1: So I think that the future of Chicago Mobile Makers is doing more workshops in schools. When we can get back to that, I think it's doing design build programs with youth, which they are actually designing and building their positive community change with their own hands. And then also that we're operating out of some kind of permanent space. So to me, that's our next step, to create this community of like-minded young people where they get to actually build things. But it's really about skill building And maybe they're going to use those skills to get a job later.
0: In the spirit of taking action, we're so excited to help support Maya's design of her permanent studio with some sweet national products. But she's not the only one stepping up. Let's go back to Jake and Edwin and hear their strategy.
4: We see our approach as sort of the long game. I don't know if this language is appropriate right now, or maybe it's extra appropriate, but it's like the vaccine compared to the cold medicine or something, like the flu medicine. The way we see it, it's going to take a decade to start seeing the fruit of diversifying the profession, beginning at a middle school, K-12 level, and then working all the way through young professionals and into licensure, which is a long and complicated process.
0: So what does the play for the long game look like?
4: The program that we have that addresses admittance is called DA Clubs, and it is a partnership with schools and really individual teachers and local architects, where we pair up a teacher and an architect to guide students through a two-year curriculum that we hand them that introduces them to some of the basic concepts of architecture. We view this as our broad program. It reaches a lot of people. It's easy to distribute DA development is kind of our deep program. So for the students from that pool that we've reached with DA clubs, we have a coaching program and it's specifically a portfolio coaching program. It has almost everything to do with preparing students to apply to collegiate architecture programs. So we link up professional architects, architectural educators, and architecture students with two to three high school students who have expressed an interest in attending an architecture program at the college level to start creating projects for their portfolios, and then developing the portfolios themselves, as well as having discussions about design that can be used for college application essays and things like that.
5: I think just to add on to it, we teach at the university locally, which is important. And then ultimately, after graduation, I'm on them constantly. So where are you in your AREs? How are you doing in your exams? Do you have all your hours? So the mentorship doesn't stop that you are able to create over the course of high school into college. It extends as you expand into a professional field. I think diversified architecture is really formalizing a lot of these mechanisms. And I think those become the actual items that we can translate and disperse to everyone to help them if they are truly committed to making this difference. then this is how we do it.
4: So for us, it's when the coaching happens, when portfolios are created, when students get into the pipeline that we kind of see our success.
0: There's a great first song on Hozier's most recent album, and the first lyric says, it's not the waking, it's the rising. That's truly what we're talking about here. It's more than just being woke. We actually have to rise and take action in order to see change happen. It's important that we open our eyes and truly see what's going on in our industry. What's going on with our fellow designers? Throughout this episode, we've talked to some people who already have boots on the ground, like Maya, Jake, and Edwin, and even Harvard University students. But what are some practical ways that you can get involved?
1: We don't really know how we're doing this yet, but as soon as we have the permanent space, we're going to start talking to companies about sponsorship and sponsoring a workshop. And I think that's how we start engaging more firms. And then obviously, when it's safe, that also means that we can take volunteers, We also have these design builds coming up so you could sponsor a design build or part of the design build that helps us actually build a real space. So there will definitely be a few things, but obviously donations are always appreciated.
4: You know, Diverse Architecture, of course, we're creating our programs to be able to launch anywhere. So there's no location too far away for you to help out with stuff that we're doing, and there are all sorts of ways to give and volunteer if you ask. If you don't know what they are, you can email us and we'll tell you what they are, but they're they out there. They're out there in every practically every community that has any sort of architectural presence.
5: You know, as a firm owner, you are who you hire you can be very intentional about who you hire. And anyone who says that it's difficult to find someone, maybe it is, but it's difficult to be in business too. If you want it, you do it. And so it really is that simple. And then you can be intentional about who you reach out to. You want them to be qualified, but you also decide what those qualifications are. And you also can see how you can be a mentor because everyone needs mentorship.
4: To add to that a little bit, it's worth promoting, elevating, and highlight your minority designers and architects. One of the critical issues with retaining minority talent is that they don't see leadership that looks like them or represents them. And it's mostly because minority designers and architects get overlooked for those positions more often than white architects and designers. But beyond that, The architects and designers who are out there who are from these communities are often not highlighted because they have a perspective that doesn't align with the majority perspective. And there are resources out there for this. And Pascal Sublime has just recently come out with a diverse designers library that is really excellent. And these stories are starting to be told more, I think, in the aftermath of summer 2020. But we need to not let that phase out as people's emotions start to settle down over the topic. We need to keep elevating people in these positions. If you're not at a senior level making hiring or promotion decisions, there are a lot of opportunities still for you to begin to not just hear or notice, but really start valuing and supporting your coworkers who are people of color.
0: As a quick workplace side note, Perkins and Will just released a brand new white paper called Creating a Culture of Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion in Your Architectural Practice, and it gives a seven-step process that outlines how the workplace, specifically our A&D firms, can take action. Authors Gabrielle Bullock and Bill Schmalz offer advice to a variety of roles and seniorities held within the firms in order to create a JEDI workplace, seriously the best name ever. It's challenging to look for things that aren't in plain sight. But I think creatives, more than anyone, are already in tune with seeing more than the average person. We see not only what is, but what could be. So I encourage you to keep looking for the ways that our professional system maybe doesn't create an equitable experience for everyone. Continue to challenge your own perspective and listen to someone else's story. We want to have these discussions, we need more seats at the table. But beyond seeing, we must take action. Even if it feels scary or you don't know where to start, ask, reach out. As a collective design industry, we should be championing inclusion and leading the charge for designing our built spaces to honor and consider everyone. There are barriers that exist in every profession, but we can be the ones to start fixing the leaks in our own pipeline. This podcast is brought to you by Kimball International. Thanks so much to Maya, Jake, and Edwin for chatting with us. And special thanks to Kiana, Layla, and Danae for courageously sharing their stories. Also, thank you to National Office Furniture for being our show sponsor. For more content, check out our show notes. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Alternative Design Podcast. Thanks for listening.